Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, bunch of words. So let's uh, visit Genesis 39, and then we'll um, take it apart. Genesis 39, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, who brought him from the Israelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now Joseph found favor in the sight in his sight and attended to him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had was made overseer of the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That means he was good looking and he had a six pack. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her, his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard these words that his wife had spoken, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it successful or succeed. Okay, so F is also for faithfulness. We're going to talk about faithfulness. This is a great text, a great narrative to talk about faithfulness. There's so many wonderful things to learn uh, from this text. A lot of times when uh, you're talking about this 
portion of the life of Joseph. Um, you know, you talk about temptation, which we'll touch on a little bit. Uh, but this is a really wonderful place to think about faithfulness. So first we want to talk about the fact that God is a faithful God. He's a faithful God. In Deuteronomy 7, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And then the covenant He makes in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, and I will make you a great nation and will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a, uh, is a promise whereby I promise to do something regardless of what you do. My, my faithfulness to what I'm promising you to do is not based on what you do. So although we enter into a covenant, it's... You see, the, the way we make agreements in our culture is, is that we enter into an agreement, and if one person violates the agreement, it violates the promise. That's not the way a covenant works. The stakes are much higher in a covenant, and when you enter into a covenant, you're agreeing to do this regardless of what the other person does. And so what I want you to see here is that when God makes this covenant with His people, it's the same promise God, that, that God makes to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He also makes to us. And here's what it is. It's to be with us, to bless us, and to use us as a channel of blessing. That's the three parts of the covenant that God makes with His people that come to play in this passage of Scripture. Now here's what I want you to understand about Joseph and his situation. He's about 17 years old when he ends up at Potiphar's house. Now, the chapter 39, the, the chronology of chapter 39 is approximately 10 to 11 years. So you're talking about a 17-year-old young man that starts working at Potiphar's house. And by the time we get to this whole thing with his wife and he ends up in jail, he's, give or take, about 28 years old. Potiphar is the captain of the king's guard. So basically, Potiphar's, Potiphar is like the head of the secret service. Potiphar's job is to make sure that the pharaoh is safe. So Potiphar has an extraordinary amount of not just wealth, but power. Potiphar can just throw him into the king's prison without any sort of trial or any sort of... Nobody's going to say anything to, what, to, to Potiphar about anything. Because he has that kind of clout. And so there's a history here. You know, 10, 11 years of, of work. Now, what sets Joseph apart from the other servants is, you know, what we have to think about. I mean, why is it that Joseph ends up running the whole place? Why is it that there's so much confidence in uh, everything that he does. It's faithfulness. And here's what I want you to see that oftentimes we miss when we look at this passage. You notice in verse 3, I'll read it to you. His master saw that the Lord was with him 
And the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now, what that sounds like at first glance is that God is the one that's doing all this, right? But let's think about what it says. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now, who is doing things and who is causing it to succeed? Because those are two different people. And God is not causing something to succeed that someone is not doing. And you have to get this. The reason that Joseph becomes the person that he is is because he is faithful. It's the faithfulness that God uses and blesses to create this success. If there's no doing, there's no succeeding. You got that? It's very important to see this. Now, I want you to think about the fact that when you read this, you see, for me, you know, there's a lot of challenges in this story. In other words, you know, if, if this was a story that wasn't in the Bible, and I wasn't, because when I'm reading the Bible, I'm trying to approach everything I read in the Bible from a posture of submission because it really doesn't matter what it says. God's saying it, so I'm going to receive it and try to obey it. But if this wasn't in the Bible, I would hate this story because this story grates against one of my strongest convictions, which is injustice. And so I just get, you know, furious thinking about it because it's so unjust. Now, as all this is going on, I want you to notice Joseph doesn't protest his unjust predicament. He doesn't try to tell Potiphar, you know, that the truth about his wife. He doesn't try to plead his case. He doesn't try to. There's no record of any of that. He's, he's not trying to, uh, you know, he's not trying to get the, you know, get himself out of a jam. He also doesn't withdraw from his unwanted environment. You see, the first step is he's not defending himself. The second step is here he is in a place he doesn't want to be for a reason that he didn't do. And yet it is amazing to me that he doesn't withdraw. He does the opposite. Instead, he presses into the culture in which he finds himself. And this is a consistent move that Joseph makes all throughout his life. That what we see in Joseph is that wherever he ends up, he presses into the culture. Which is a very important thing to see. Because it's unnatural. What would be natural would be to try to defend yourself and try to get out of it. The second thing that would come natural to all of us is that if we ended up there anyway, to withdraw from it because we want to reject it, because we are upset about it, because we don't like it. Because, But he doesn't do that. He actually presses in, which is an astonishing reality. Now, what's the gospel uh, message in that? Well, Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the question is, 
Well, who decides what men your light shines before? You see, Joseph would have no problem answering this question. That's the reason that he presses in to the culture he finds himself in. Because he understands that his responsibility is to let his light shine, not to determine where the light shines. Just like we said in Acts 17 when we started the 4 series a few months ago, where the Bible says that he, the Lord, has made from one blood every nation and people who dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That's God's business. That's not our business. And so God plants us where, where he wants us and where he puts us. And listen, that doesn't mean that where God puts you, you have to stay. That doesn't mean that where God puts you, you'll always be. For most of us in the room, we haven't always been here. But we're here now. And you say, well, then, am I here forever? Well, I don't know. But here's, you're here until God moves you. That's what you should be. Because if you're not here until God moves you, and if you move you, you're going to be in trouble. You don't want to be where God doesn't put you. And so the, the, our responsibility is to let our light shine. God's job is to determine who it is we're going to shine our light before. Now, the principle is that God's covenant is larger than our personal comfort. Because what happens when we look at this story is we start to see that God's priorities start to sift out of this picture. And we start to see how radically different they are than the way we naturally think, the way we naturally would look at things. You see, Joseph is a slave. He's in a foreign land where he's considered an outsider. Life is very hard for him, and it has been for a long time. Everything in his life seems completely out of his control. Nobody's looking for Joseph. Nobody. And it appears nobody's looking out for Joseph. And yet, somehow in this picture, God is faithful. The Bible says the Lord is with him and the Lord blesses him. And others are actually blessed through him. That what we see on display is not what... Here's, here's what you start to see unravel out of this. Not first and foremost, what's good for Joseph... By the way, if you, don't, if you don't hate the next 15 minutes of this talk, then I'm probably not doing it justice. Because this is the most anti-American uh, passage of Scripture that could possibly be. Like the most opposite Western mindset in the Bible. So what does God do? God doesn't do what's best for Joseph. Here's what God does. God keeps his covenant. That's what he does. Everything God's doing in Joseph's life is in exact accordance with the promise that God made to Joseph. What would happen 
if we could adopt this mindset, like if, if you could begin to see the operation of God in your life as in accordance with that which is that He has promised and not what's best for you or what you want or what you like or what you think or what you... Your life would radically change for the better. Your... your Ability to see spiritual things would multiply exponentially. If we could just see this. See, I always say that the greatest words ever spoken that aren't in the Bible is this quote by A.W. Tozer. The greatest, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Like it just missed the scripture by like this much. I think that is 100% true. So here's my question. Do you believe that God is always faithful? Like, the problem is, I know that you think you do. I know that you immediately in your mind said, well, yes, but is that really true? Like, I mean, do you really, do we really believe That God is always faithful. No matter what happens in your life. No matter what's going on. No matter how uncomfortable things are. No matter how out of control things seem. No matter how much injustice has befallen you. Do you really and truly believe with all your heart that God is always faithful? In other words, when what you think about, when you think about God, do you think faithfulness and then if you believe that he's always faithful then the question the million dollar question is faithful to what and guess what all the American church believes everybody in America believes this That God is faithful to me. That's what we think. And he is faithful to me. But is that that primary one? Or is his top priority always faithfulness to himself? In other words, think about this. Do... Do what you want, what you need, what you ask for, from God, what you pray about, what you, what does any circumstance in your life at any time ever take precedent over what God said? Does God ever, does God ever break a promise in order to give you what you want? Does He ever do something that he said he wouldn't do in order to meet your need? Ever. Now think about it. In other words, if you think about it more than five minutes, you'll realize that you've known this all your life. You just lie to yourself. It's very obvious. We all know when we think about it that God has never, ever, one time, nor will he ever, 
violate his promise for anything else, including me or you. So, is he faithful? Yes. And what is he supremely faithful to? Himself. Not to me. Not to you. And we should be so thankful for that tonight. What a mess the world would be if God was faithful to us first. What a terrible situation we'd be in. So now when we start thinking this through, we realize that basing God's faithfulness on anything other than His promise will ultimately lead us to be discouraged, defeated, and ultimately lead to disobedience. Every time. We drink this cup of Kool-Aid and then we wonder, why is everything a wreck? Why, are we, why can't we seem to, to do this, to figure this out? You know, God, how many times have we said to ourselves, God, I did this and I did that and I did this and then this happened and I don't understand. Because we're basing his faithfulness on the wrong things. If you deviate from this principle, it cannot, it cannot end anywhere except for disobedience. It will 100% of the time. Because what happens is, as soon as you get defeated and discouraged... The next step is disobedience. Every time. It's going to be a disaster. And the whole time, God has been perfectly, unequivocally faithful. Now, if, if we were going to define faithfulness, we could say all sorts of things. We could say that faithfulness is based on loyalty. It's based on trustworthiness. It's, it's doing the right thing according to God. It's acting out of an upright heart. I mean, I just wrote all these ways that we could define it. It's to be faithful is to be dependable and trustworthy. But is that really faithfulness? I mean, I, I got to get things boiled all the way down to the simplest possible Result. The bottom line. Faithfulness is at its core. Simply trusting God. That's what it is. That is the essence of faithfulness. So here... Is Joseph in this mess with Potiphar's wife? And he gets himself, you know, or he doesn't get himself. He ends up in this situation. And uh, we don't have any indication that it was um, by any doings of his own, do we? 
You see, the Bible doesn't say, doesn't give any, because there could be ways that the Bible could let us know that, that maybe Joseph had created an environment where it cultivated this problem to happen. Like maybe even, maybe even unknowingly, like the Bible could say that oftentimes Joseph would work in the field without his shirt. could say that. But it doesn't say that. He was just being faithful. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything to create this or cause this. Or You see, sometimes you get in situations that you don't want to be in. Sometimes we end up in places in our life where things are, are painful and bad and confusing and hurtful and so on and so forth. And we didn't do anything to cause it. It just happens that way. And again, in that moment, is God faithful? And to what or whom is he faithful to? So when we're faced with temptation, there's always this question in our mind. Always. We, we're, we're tempted to, to, to do this or to, or to you know, somehow advance our cause or, you know, make some extra money or, I mean, you know, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. Temptation always comes along, and when it does, it asks the same question. We just word it in all sorts of different ways, but it's always at the heart. Are, are there some things that are sometimes better than God? Because it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a temptation if this question didn't come up. Because if this question didn't come up, then we would just not be tempted by it, right? And I've talked about this multitudes of times before, that just because something comes up and something is available, it doesn't make it a temptation. And I always say the same thing, like, I have never and will never be tempted by Brussels sprouts. It's impossible to tempt me with them. Now, that may not be true for everybody. That's what I'm saying. We're all different. But the point is that, is that in order for it to become a temptation, when you start to consider whether or not you're going to do this or whether or not you're going to, you start thinking about, am I going to get caught or what would be the consequences or this or that or the other, or what would be the benefits of it? Or, all, at the root of all that is this question. So what would be highly beneficial is, is that when we're not in a state of temptation to answer the question. Because the question is, is super valuable right now. And if you can get this leveraged into your heart, then when temptation comes, you're already ahead of the game. Now notice, notice. In verse 9, I'll read it to you. It says, his response, Joseph's response is, he is not greater in the house than I am, nor has, it would just be helpful, like on your handout, you can just write verse 9 right here so you know where I'm referencing these points. So he says, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he held back anything except you because you are his wife. So here's what we see. First of all, Joseph has a high regard for what? Marriage. Now, not only he has a high regard for marriage, he has a high regard for authority. See those two things right there? But here's the key. Notice the very next part of the verse. He says, 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, in the equation was his respect for authority. In the equation was his uh, high regard for marriage. But the key is the fact that he sees nothing at any time as being better than God. So you see, the key to this whole thing is that Joseph, he sees this whole scenario through the lens of God, not himself. This is what we do. We get into a situation of temptation, and then every thought in our mind is, how will this affect me? Well, you know, how will this, you know, will, if I get caught, how will this punish me? What will, you know, what would I do if I get this? If I, everything is through the lens of me, the wrong lens. You see, if you, if when you face temptation, if you start thinking about you, you're done. This is the, this is the genius of this whole text is that Joseph is not thinking about him. I guarantee you, I don't know, you get to heaven, you can ask, find out. I will guarantee you Potiphar's wife was smoking hot. Guarantee. I guarantee you she was. Didn't matter. Look, I'm just telling you. He's been hanging out around her since he was 17 years old. But he sees this through the lens of God, not himself. The minute you start, the minute you think about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Not for one second did Jesus think, boy, I am so hungry. Man, I am so. No, it wasn't. He didn't see anything through the lens of himself. Immediately, everything was through the lens of God. That's the key. And see, so here's what happens. What happens is, is when we, when we look through, when we see temptation, and we're, we're looking through the lens of ourselves, and we're thinking about ourselves, then here's what we do. The self, because the self is strong. And you know what the self does? The self will push us with amazing force to react. To react. This is how we end up, you know, this is why so oftentimes it goes temptation followed by I, I see it through the lens of myself. I react followed by, oh my goodness, what did I just do? Do you know why, oh my goodness, what did I just do came? Because we reacted. Do you know what, oh my goodness, what did I just do never follows? A response. You see, a measured response never ends in, oh my gosh, what did I just do? It's a, it's a reaction. It's a quick decision. It's a jump. And then it's, well, what have I done? And so here's how you can understand this. See, when we react to circumstances, we set up, we are set ourselves up to reflect the very circumstances. You see that? It's like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. When we react, 
what we're doing is we're, we are creating an environment where we're embracing the circumstance. We will reflect it. It will, you can't do that. You can't do that. You got to look through the lens of God. And the way to do that is see, you, the, these are things in, in advance. You cultivate a mindset. You cultivate into your relationship with God. You have a personal relationship with God, I hope. You cultivate into that relationship with God. God, you are a faithful God, and I trust you. And you say this to God. God, and I know that you're faithful to yourself above all, including me. And I'm grateful for that because I don't want you to be faithful to me because I know the best thing is always what you want. So you're faithful to you. And I know you keep all your promises. You're a covenant-keeping God. And so when you cultivate that into your heart when life is good, then when a circumstance comes, you won't react and reflect that circumstance into your life. See, think about it. When we react, what happens? We relinquish control. That's what happens. We lose it. Let me ask you a question. At, at Potiphar's house, who's the slave? Because if you think about it, uh, Joseph's not the slave. Potiphar's wife is the slave. She's the slave to her desires. She's the slave to lust. She's the slave to looking at temptation through the lens of herself. Joseph is a free man because he just freely runs away from her. See, he, he's not having this internal struggle. The Bible doesn't say, and Joseph wrestled within himself, or he took one look at her and drops of blood, sweat from his head, and then he went the other way. That's not what it says. He was gone. Out. Yeah, I mean, it's so, so important to see this. She's the slave, not him. Now, here's where it gets good. Now, let's, let's, let, this, let's let this drive into our theological understanding of God so that it can really benefit us in our life, okay? So let's, let's think about it. First of all, God could have prevented Joseph from being sold into slavery. God could have prevented that. No problem. He's sovereign. He's good. God could have prevented him from being ambushed by Potiphar's wife. He could have struck her dead with lightning. He could have turned her into a pillar of salt. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But he didn't. He didn't, he didn't stop Joseph's brother from throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery. He didn't stop Potiphar's wife from ambushing him. Don't we think, this is how we think, this is what we, this is really what we think. I mean, let's just embrace how goofy we are. This is what we really believe. We believe, see, if we were writing this story, the way this would go is that Joseph is faithful to God. 
And so as he's walking into the house this particular day when there was no one else around, this still small voice whispered in his ear and said, Turn around. Don't go in. It's not safe. And Joseph turned around and went away. And we go, Yay! That's what we think. And yet, what did God do? Let him walk right in. Did he do anything wrong? No. He was just being faithful. I told you you were going to hate it. Your K-love theology just got exploded into a billion little pieces. God could have prevented him from being thrown in jail. See, again, here's, here's another way we would have adjusted the story. We would have said, all of this happened, and no, 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 no. And then somehow, when Potiphar came home, the Lord spoke to Potiphar in a dream and showed him the wickedness of his wife. And he got up the next morning and threw his wife in jail. Yeah! That's not what happened. And yet, the very last sentence of Genesis 39, the last sentence of the chapter says, And whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. Uh-oh. So who, who's right? You or God? It says it right there. Whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. How are you going to reconcile that one? You gotta you gotta think rightly. It's the only way. You gotta realize that if that doesn't make sense to you, your your idea of God is way too small. Way too small. You've shrunk God into some weird human God that you can that makes sense to you. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the universe. Look, just in the most tiny way, okay? If, if we were the only people on earth, just, just this little dot right here, if we were the only people on earth, just us, and we knew that God had made us all in His own image, just this room would tell us that God is way bigger than our ability to understand Him, if that's true. Just the, just the diversity in this room, which is not much. 
So if God's made billions and billions and billions of people all in His image, then what does that tell you about His image? If God's made an infinite number of the color green, you can't count. We don't have a number high enough just to count the shades of green that exist in the world. But yet somehow we're going to whittle God down into this thing that makes complete sense to us. That is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Whatever Joseph did, God made him succeed. He made it succeed. So let me ask you a question. What is a blessing? This is going to be great. What is a blessing? Because, I mean, we say it all the time. But what a blessing. Well, then what is it? I want to know the definition of blessing. That's what I want to know. I mean, who says it's a blessing? Just because we say it's a blessing, is it a blessing? How do we, how do we know? And furthermore, since we're finite and we're trapped in time, and so the only thing I know is what's right in front of me and what's previously already occurred before me, I have no clue what's around the next corner. Then how can I say this is a blessing without a definition, an understanding of what a blessing is? Because I don't know what's around the next corner. You see, like you could give me a present and I could receive the present from you and I could look at how nicely it's wrapped and the big smile on your face and you say, happy birthday, Pastor Tony, and I take it and say, what a blessing. But there's a hand grenade in it that's about to explode and I don't know that. What a blessing. What is a blessing? Is a blessing... When we get what we want, is a blessing, is the definition of a blessing, well, it's, we get what we like. Is that a blessing? Is the definition of a blessing when it goes as we expect it to go? Is that what a blessing is? What is a blessed life? Is a blessed life to, to have a, a loving marriage? Is a blessed life to have obedient children? to have a healthy body, to have a successful career, to be financially stable, to have good friendships. What is a blessing? What is a blessed life? What is it? You see, because if you really stop and think about all these things that we affix the tag blessing to without really considering what we're talking about, if you take them and you add them all up and you say, because my, my quick list was a loving marriage, obedient children, a healthy body, successful career, good friendships, and financial security. If that equals a blessing, then let's think about all the people on earth that have that in abundance. Are they blessed? 
what is a blessing? I should send you home and then give you the answer next week. Let you stew on it for a few days. What is it? There are blessings in your life all the time. Blessings in my life all the time. What are they? Anything that draws us closer to Jesus is a blessing. That's what a blessing is. Now that last sentence, I mean, there is so many mind-blowing statements in Genesis 39. So many theology-altering statements. If you just meditate on these things, it will absolutely revolutionize your understanding. Verse 21 and 22. Mind-boggling. Here's what the Bible says. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him. Now understand, the slave, betrayed by his brothers, thrown in a pit, sold in slavery, then betrayed by Potiphar's wife. Now he's sitting in prison. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything to deserve any of this. His whole life has been a complete disaster. And the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph and, not just that, and showed him steadfast love. And gave him favor. What? Steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, don't you think steadfast love would have been that the prison fell down? Don't you think steadfast love would have been that he... Uh, miraculously found the key to the gate in his pocket? I mean, something. No. No, steadfast love gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who was in the prison. Man, just think about that for a while. God's not doing it. God's taking what Joseph is doing and he's making it succeed. He's making it work according to his covenant promise. All Joseph is doing is being faithful. Joseph gets this. I mean, he gets this like nobody else. He gets it. All right, let's pull all this together. The key to knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is faithful is understanding that His faithfulness is not based on our faithfulness. So important. Do you know why we would all struggle with seeing God faithful when we're in prison? is because of this principle right here. You see, the only way that we can conclude 
that us being in prison is evidence of unfaithfulness on God's part is to draw the conclusion that we don't deserve to be in the prison, which means our faithfulness must have negated our deserving of being in prison, which is the most ridiculous false statement you can ever make. That's not true. You see, the, the, the goal of this whole time that we're spending together is for you to leave here tonight. The only thing I want for you is I want you to leave here tonight and devote yourself to knowing an unshakable knowing that God is faithful and to know what He's faithful to. That's all I want you to take from this. But in order to do that, you got to understand this. His faithfulness is never based on our faithfulness. Notice simply, common verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. Now notice, I mean, just think about how that, what that verse says. If we confess our, what, what now? What are we confessing? In other words, when you come to 1 John 1, 9, before you even get to the first word, you already know you're unfaithful because you're confessing that you're unfaithful and then the Bible says, but he is faithful. See, we're not faithful. He is faithful. We confess our unfaithfulness, but he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because if his faithfulness was based on our performance or our faithfulness, we would have zero chance now, we say things like this, and we know things like this, but in the heat of the battle, when life gets hard, when temptation bears down, we lose it, and we react, and we end up in disobedience because we haven't come to the place where we believe he's faithful. When we confess our sin. Our sin, our disobedience, our unfaithfulness. How we turned our back on you, God. We knew it was wrong before we did it, and we did it anyway. In that moment, you are faithful. Always faithful. 2 Timothy 2. If we're faithless, he's faithful. If you don't have a shred of faith. You see, it only takes a, a, a faith the size of a mustard seed to move the mountain. But see, there's a lot of mountains that I can't move because I don't even have a mustard seed. But the, the thing I got to know is that when, I'm, when my faith meter is at zero, he's still ultimately faithful. He's still supremely faithful. I'm at zero, he's at 100%. He's not waiting around for us to crawl our way up to 1% or 2% or 3%. When we're faithless, he's faithful. So listen to me. Struggling to keep the commitments you make to God, I'm just telling you something you already know. Struggling to keep the commitments you make to God, how's it going for you? All it's going to do is lead to self-condemnation. 
That's why it never works. You can muster it up. You can pull up your bootstraps. You can, you can bear down. That's not the recipe for success. Mm. The strength that we need to be faithful. How do we be faithful? Where does that strength come from? It can only be found in the promise. God through Jesus Christ has been faithful in our place. Do you know how I'm faithful? The same way you're faithful. We're faithful in Christ's faithfulness. You see, the only chance I have of being faithful is understanding that it's in Look, I need his faithfulness. How do I access his faithfulness? It's in my weakness his strength is made perfect. There is no Tony can do this. He's going to get the job done. No. I need Christ's faithfulness. I have to access his faithfulness. You see, because think about it. How ridiculous is this? I am, I am condemned permanently and, eternity, and permanently and eternally and fully deserving of hell. Christ in his perfect sacrifice switches places with me. And so now the, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed into my account. So when I stand before God, God doesn't see my sin, but he sees Christ's perfection. Therefore, I can have a relationship with him. And then somehow the devil has got us so twisted and so perverted in this idea that then when we need to access strength, we reach back down into hell to try to get strength out of our dead pocket. There is no strength there. That's why we were there in the first place. The strength is what's been imputed to us from Christ. We need his strength. And the only way for me to walk in his strength is I got to be weak in me. I got to know that God's always faithful. He's always faithful. He's faithful to his promises. That's what he's faithful to. And you know what's a blessing? Anything that draws me closer to him, that's a blessing. Anything that makes me more like him, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. So, what does all this mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that whenever we are faithful, it's only because he's faithful. You see, the proof... To everything I've said tonight is that whenever you and me are faithful, how does that happen? It can only happen one way. Th think, about, think about the text from 1 Corinthians from last Sunday morning. Remember the text where the Bible says we were once led astray by dumb idols? And the next verse says... You can't even say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit. 
No man can say that. Nobody. So if you can't even say that without God, how, how are we going to be faithful? How are we going to be faithful in the face of temptation? How are we going to be faithful when things aren't going? This is how we're going to do it. We're going to immerse ourselves in an understanding of God based on what's revealed to us about God in His Word. And if we can embrace this reality that God's always faithful. And here, here's the thing. I learned a long time ago that there's a lot of promises in the Bible. You know that? There's a lot. And so when life starts unraveling around me, I'm not trying to figure out what promise God's being faithful to. I already know He's faithful to His promise, whether I know what it is or not. You see? You don't have to, 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 to win at what I've said tonight. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to know. You don't have to have a list in your pocket and whip out your list and get out all the promises and figure out which one. You don't have to. You just have to know enough promises to know that God's always faithful to his promise. And so if you don't understand it, it just must be that you haven't got to that promise yet. But don't you worry. There's a promise that he's faithful to in everything that he's doing. And here's the thing. When we, he didn't have to do it this way, but he's just good. See, he shows us loving kindness while we're in prison. While everything's wrong, it's not right. It's unjust. We shouldn't be here. Why is this happening? And so many people just dive off the cliff of, God, I did this and I did this. And then you didn't like, really? You're going to bring your, you're going to reach down into hell and get your dead faithfulness and bring it up. And you're going to challenge God with that. That's what you're going to do. But what if we, in that moment when everything's not, fitting together, we, we go, God, I know this is your loving kindness in my life. I know it is. It has to be. It can't be any other way because you're sovereign and you're good. And I'm your son. And you love me. And so no matter what happens, you're with me. You'll bless me according to our definition of blessing. And you'll put me in a position to bless others. Because that's your promise. That's always been your promise. And it's never going to change. It's never going to change. See, sometimes we don't see. We can't see. How is it making me more like Jesus? How is it drawing me closer to Jesus? I don't know. But it is. It is. It is. This is why everything in this life hinges on. Do you know Christ? Because if you cannot wake up every day in confidence that you are his child. Everything's going to be a disaster. 
Because nothing I've said tonight applies. Nothing. You can't even begin to do anything I've said tonight unless you know that you're his son or his daughter and he's your dad and he loves you and his promises are for you. And once you know that, then you just start soaking in what does that mean? What does that make true every day, all the time, no matter what happens around me? And everything starts to change. 